2: Episode 52, Utilizing Artificial Intelligence in Our Discovery Responses. My conversation with BriefPoints co founder, Nathan Walter. <music> Hello, I'm Michael D. Eisenberg. I'm the Tech Savvy Lawyer, blogging at the page and host of the page podcast. In this podcast series, I'll be interviewing lawyers, judges, and others in the area of law to talk about where they see lawyers new and seasoned, taking advantage of technology in their legal work, and how all lawyers can utilize technology to better their practice, improve their services to their clients, and enhance their own lives. My next guest is Nathan Walter. Nathan is an attorney and former litigator based in California. He is also the CEO of BriefPoint helps you draft fast discovery responses that you will not have to redline. Its artificial intelligence algorithms are specifically trained to eliminate your routine drafting tasks so you can focus on more strategic work or just make it home for dinner. Enjoy. Nathan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mike. I'm uh, happy to be here. I'm thrilled that you're here. And to get things started,
1: what is your current tech setup? So as far as what I'm looking at right now from my point of view in my office i have a the first thing in my vision is a a huge a really loud microphone like loud it looks loud it's bright red it's a condenser microphone it's a HyperX quadcast and i use this all the time just to improve voice quality or voice audio quality on zooms and i also do calls from my computer and i use this microphone it only captures audio directly in front of it so i can have construction outside and no one will be the wiser. It stresses me out. So maybe they'll wonder why I'm antsy. But other than that, it doesn't bother anybody. So I've had this throughout the whole pandemic in remote work. And it's been my favorite piece of tech. And any condenser mic you can get, they are a couple hundred dollars. It, it just has really improved the, the quality of my life or, and the quality of people who have to listen
2: to me talks lives as well, I would hope. The other thing I'm looking, yeah. Well, well, before we go there, so I've got two questions about your microphone. One, you said you use it when you're on calls through your your computer. What is the program you use to make phone calls on your computer? So it depends
1: on what I'm doing, but I have Google Voice. If I'm making Mm -hmm. calls, you can use, if you're using a email sending facilitator program like Sales Loft or Mixmax, you can make calls through that. And for me, it's just nice because I don't need to worry about pairing my AirPods to my phone. And there's that awkward pause where you're not sure if they're connected. And this is just, I can lean back in my chair, have a conversation. And it's a little bit more natural because I don't need to worry about holding anything really. Well, do you wear headphones while you're on the phone? No, so I have the audio come out of my speakers as they are Mm -hmm. now, but because it isolates the audio in front of me, I can be playing music, I can hear your audio, and no one else can hear it.
2: Okay, excellent, excellent. And you don't worry about, like, for instance, when you do have construction outside that you can't hear what the the other party is saying? I just crank it up to 11 and hope they don't hear the feedback. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent, excellent. And so I have a Blue Yeti for my, and I'm still somewhat new in podcasting. And, you know, I have to look at, you know, a little bit later as hopefully funds become available that, you know, to improve my microphone and certain settings in the office and the recording studio here, if you will. That being said, so what, what does a condenser do in a, that's built into a microphone that maybe the Blue Yeti can't do or other microphones can't do?
1: yeah, so the blue Yeti is a condenser mic as well. And what it does is effectively it improves your audio as it receives it. So it has mm-hmm. hardware in the microphone itself, which translates your audio into something that sounds more high quality and is more high quality ultimately
2: and I, got, I have to ask just out of, minute, is your hyper podcast better than the blue Yeti?
1: No, I would say that the, if anything, the blue yeti might be better. I just like oh, this wow. it, it has this really bright LED on it. And I'm okay. a big fan of LEDs. I'm like kind of a nerdy in that way.
2: Well, well you know, it's funny. I'm holding up my, my Blue Yeti to the camera so that Nathan can see. I got a little foam top on top of it, a little like little cap for it instead yes. of having the, the windscreen, because it's just one extra thing I don't have to worry about manipulating on my desk. And I have to see if I can get like, a bright yellow cap for this just to sort of match your orange yeah you, but, you gotta
1: know. you have it to have a bright mic your mic
2: <laughs> you gotta make them loud you gotta feel
1: like you're some sort of streamer playing video games yelling on mic and on air that's how i live life and i think everyone should do the same
2: well wait i'm gonna go off <laughs> on a real tangent then okay do you play video games and what is your video game of choice oh
1: my gosh it is so you know i try <laughs> yes and uh, it's funny because I actually, so, you know, I'm the CEO of Briefpoint and mm-hmm. I met my CTO through video games. He was, Excellent. happened to be a lead engineer at Relativity at the time. Okay. And that's how we started Briefpoint. And Briefpoints, we communicate on the same, we call Discord, which is the same sort of chat right. room mm-hmm. that people use predominantly for video gaming and coordinating playing video games together. I play every video game. I have a, you know, PlayStation and a computer. I, it's a really good way for me to keep in touch with my friends from law school who now live all across the United States. So I would not call, you know, maybe this is a guy thing. I don't know, but I wouldn't call them out of the blue and chat and catch up as frequently as I would hop on a video game with them. And then I can, you know, I'm not that great at them, but it's nice to be able to talk to them and catch up and sort of share some experiences together, even though we live so far away.
2: Well, I got to ask, what PlayStation do you have and what is your favorite game? Oh, yeah. So I have
1: uh, the PlayStation 5, and which is great. I love that thing. And right now I'm playing Overwatch 2. One of my dear friends is the privacy counsel at Blizzard, Divya Gupta. She's an amazing attorney, mm-hmm. amazing privacy counsel. And so she... Gives me some of the the deals for uh, Blizzard games, and Blizzard's a producer of wow. video games, including Overwatch, and that's what I, so that's what I'm playing now.
2: Well, we could probably go off on a long tangent on this, but we should probably focus it back on the practice of law. So, what other tech stuff you got in the office? Okay, so I have a an Alienware wide
1: format curved monitor that I like because I can do see multiple things at once. It's not two monitors. They found there was a study that found that. Two to three monitors actually does not increase productivity. It lowers it. So I found a way around that and just bought a really long mm-hmm. monitor. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully yep. that re- doesn't hurt my productivity. I don't know.
2: It has the same effect at the end of the day. You are the and- second guest to have cited that to me, that research study that you're referring to. Yeah. And he said the same thing. Now I have a three monitor setup, but I've got them so close together that I try to make it like one flowing screen. But maybe I need to learn something new. I, but please, I honestly
1: ahead. I don't know that the divide I think the study did not look at wide format screens in practice it's likely has the same effect of having multiple screens because I have two to three different windows up at all times anyways so right. I don't know but I like it and again you know it's good for video that, gaming that's all that matters whether you like right. I have another monitor so I have a small monitor uh, mm-hmm. that's about five inches by eight inches to my left here and I use mm-hmm. that just for if I have an email, if I'm work- doing serious work, I'll have that on like the email so I can see if important emails are coming up. Right. Just a quick reference frame, really. Excellent.
2: And what is your computer?
1: So my computer, I built my PC. So it is a PC and it just, you know, it's sort of a collection of, of different parts. It doesn't have a, a necessary a single manufacturer. Okay, cool. What else? I also have a, a Mac a laptop for other work. I have a Lenovo laptop for work. I Have an iPhone, an iPad. I have a mechanical keyboards. I love mechanical keyboards. I'm a big keyboard guy. So uh, it's just the feeling of typing on a really nice keyboard. I think is Mm -hmm. very underrated. And you can get something like uh, the DOS keyboard, or there's some other keyboards that are just delightful to type on, and it just makes a an otherwise potentially rote experience just that much more enjoyable.
2: Well, I recall when we talked before off mic that. You know, when I learned how to type, I learned it as a class in high school and we had to do it on the mechanical electrical typewriters. And I was thrilled to kind of get away from all that. I know some people really love it like yourself, but I really enjoy the short distances that I have to travel with my fingers.
1: And you can tune your mechanical keyboard for that. The stroke distance is something you can buy these little, I mean, I've actually built my keyboards and you take these modules out with the keystrokes. Uh, You can do it as short as you want. You can make them loud. You can make them quiet. Uh, I actually don't have any, all of my keys are entirely blank. So Mm -hmm. it's just a blank I'm showing you now. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes you a little bit better of a typer, but it certainly gets a little tricky when I have a complicated password and I'm sort of like typing into blindness.
2: Yeah. And that's, I mean, because sometimes when I'm trying to type in a password, I'm just doing it so fast that my hands get a little too fast and I, you know, it constantly all slip and like, what I did do wrong. It was how it is. And, but you just kind of press forward. Yeah so you have a a mac laptop which one is it oh i don't know uh it's a i think it's a macbook pro okay you don't know how does it have an m1 chip in it i honestly don't
1: know i have to use pcs for work uh, with BriefPoint, so that's sort of what i i know most about
2: and how old what version of the lenovo laptop do you have do you know it's
1: one of the newer carbon ones and it's just i wanted i like to buy things that last so i only want to buy something once and so i just bought what I found to be a good enough laptop that will last me a long time. And in that vein, and I like laptops where you can replace and update the pieces yourself, which is something that Macs are not affording in a, as much as they used to.
2: Yeah, especially with all the soldering they're doing inside, that kind of drives me nuts too. Yeah,
1: I think there is talk about making the iPhones a little bit more modular, meaning that you can take and replace the pieces. There's certainly things. There's phone companies that are mm-hmm. purely module where you effectively mm-hmm. build your cell phone. And I would love to see Apple follow in suit because the amount of waste that's produced from selling a new iPhone every year is a little bit uh, uh concerning. That being said, I understand the business model and I'm yeah. not a professional.
2: <laughs> yeah, I have feeling it's going to be a ways off because I think they're looking at doing flip phones first before they get onto the modular stuff. Oh, wow. But... Yeah, they're trying to catch up on that aspect to Samsung. But to be honest, they're nice, the flip phones, but they're not great. You know, still has that slight, in my opinion, cheapness feel aspect to them just because of the screen that they just haven't mastered yet, which is fine. But then again, a lot of people love it and, you know, I hope they enjoy it. We're working on it. So which iPhone do you have?
1: Ooh, I believe I have an iPhone 11 and I've actually, I've been just, I really want to get the iphone mini which i think the latest version is a 13 but don't quote me on that i really like the the mini just the and also my iphone's in black and white but we can talk about that too it's sort of related to the reason i want the mini it's just sort of reduced the the neural stimulation from using the phone in order to decrease the temptation to check it frequently which is a distraction right Fair and enough. so the mini shrinks the screen, and so it's it's smaller, it's easier to port. And then I keep my iPhone in black and white so that whenever I check it, I'm getting less of a you know a, a brain stimulation. So gotcha. I, I'm not as gotcha. And if you you can do that you go to accessibilities, display screen size color color filters click them on the defaults, black
2: and white and you will immediately hate using your phone and I would highly recommend it. <laughs> that, that is an interesting approach. Uh, you know instead of loving your phone you're basically encouraging people to hate it so they don't use it as much which that is an interesting concept. Although the one thing I I find interesting is that you prefer the smaller phone where I prefer the larger phone so I have a 13 Pro Max and I believe on Monday I'm getting the the 14 Pro Max, and I really enjoy the larger size because I can increase the text size. I get a little bit more screen real estate, and it just feels a little bit more comfortable in my hands. But then again, I'm a little bit older than you, and then as we get older, you know, our eyes are going, and it gets a little harder sometimes to see things. So yeah, that could be, you know, part of the expression of the generational thing, but also at the same time, it's a preference thing too.
1: Yeah. I mean, the whole goal is I just want to increase the friction between Mm. me and possible interruptions in my day. And so to do that, you know, I black and white, you get a smaller phone after I use an app that's not work-related, I delete it. And if I want to go back to an app that's not work-related, I have to go to the app store and reinstall it. Right. So there's all these steps that I take to increase friction and the, the end result being a more uninterrupted, productive day.
2: And are you finding that you're losing any, if you will, steps because you have a Apple device versus a Windows computer? No, not at all. I mean, my
1: Apple device, I use Gmail and they all have apps. So there's really no friction there. I'm aware that the Apple ecosystem is an incredibly satisfying experience to live in in whole. But I, because I need the PC to do coding and other types of things, I make it work for me. Well, lastly, I have to ask,
2: what is your iPad?
1: Ooh, iPad is a, I actually got my iPad on selling a, a Bitcoin uh, just randomly. It's kind of funny. Like that's what oh. it bought back in the day. I'm not into cryptocurrency or anything anymore. It's just a funny little thing. The iPad, I don't know what it's one of the newer ones, probably within the last, it's probably three years old. And I really do like my iPad to do work on the road because I can do emails. I can check, yeah. uh, you know, brief point statuses online. Yeah. I can do the admin functions. And so that's sort of, uh, I have tiers of what I bring on every trip, depending on how much work I envision doing, Yep. starting with just my phone, then going to the iPad and then going to one laptop and then maybe even two laptops.
2: Do you have the pencil and or a keyboard?
1: Yeah, so I have the pencil. And when I was a litigator, I would carry my iPad with me everywhere. And so I'd go into, for example, a partner's office Mm -hmm. and they would give me instructions on drafting or doing some sort of activity. And I take notes in the pencil, and that was like a really great way to have an ongoing to-do list. I now have all my to-do lists. I carry around two physical notebooks. Okay. So I have one notebook for notes on meeting notes, and then okay. I have this notebook, which is just a running to-do list. So I keep my to-do list and and notes distinct. And I just I don't know. I just I always just return to pen and paper. I hate saying that because I'm so like gung ho on mm-hmm. digitalization and. And here I am with a physical with a notepad, but some things I just prefer.
2: What is that? uh, Is it remarkability or remarkable that it's like a small notebook and you can write on it and then it will automatically send to your computer? Oh, yeah, I have seen those. I saw one on a plane coming back from Nashville and I asked a woman about it and she's like, I really like it, but there's a couple things wrong with it. And I just didn't understand why she didn't like use her iPad.
1: Yeah. And and, and, you know, some of those notebooks, they feel more like a pencil when you're drawing an iPad. However, there are screens that I've added to my iPad, like a a sheet that has the same texture as paper. And that actually goes a a very long way in feeling more like uh, you're writing in real life, I suppose.
2: Well, let's get into the questions. For our first question, what are three tech tools you use that you think will help attorneys with their day-to-day work? So I'm not practicing
1: mm-hmm. litigation anymore. I can talk generally about tech tools I think would help, and some tech tools I do use. Please. One of the first tech tools that I think any you know, litigation attorney or even a transactional or corporate attorney should use, to the extent they're in their own firm, is is client intake processes. So digital client intake processes, and you know you can look at companies like Gideon, which has AI chatbots and other tech tools to effectively pre-qualify clients before you enter into engagement, I think can go a long way for a lot of practices.
2: So are you referring to, to companies like Clio and Rocket Matter, amongst others, that you know, have a format of a CRM? Is that what you're referring to? Or is there something like a specific tool? You mentioned Gideon. Is there something about Gideon that stands out to you that would really help Attorneys with their intake process,
1: absolutely. And, you know, and obviously, I think case management and Clio is is also important. But mm-hmm. just, I think it's important to get data on your potential clients before having to do interviews and really get into a serious right. thing. You can sort of filter out the top of a, a firm's funnel using oh. something like Gideon, which is a chat bot. So, injured party goes onto plaintiff's attorney's website. A chat bot comes up and says, "Talk to me about your case." Then the attorney gets a report. On that, and then they can determine, you know, whether it's something that they take, and that just saves them a lot of time, and it also reduces risk down the road. If you sort of get further down into it, and maybe your investigation, you forgot to check a box, and it's, it turns out to be a problem.
2: Well, I know companies are using programs like DocuMate for to create a database for intake that they'll create some sort of web application to their websites and say, okay, tell us about your case, your name, where you live, the type of injury, a brief description of what happened, what court you are in, you know, what the status of your case is, perhaps the court name if it's already in process, you know, the type of issue that you're dealing with, et cetera. Is that sort of like what you're referring to? That's
1: exactly what I'm talking about. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, there is a lot of use of that, but I think it's mm-hmm. important to bring up in case someone is not using that and they I think there is a lot of value in it
2: yeah I still sort of screen my potential clients just through the receptionists. They have some you know set questions to ask based on the issue that you know they're calling about.
1: Yeah, yeah so that's one. Yes. Two. Uh, the second is probably just uh, using a contract lifecycle management tool. I think the if you're using a patchwork of Google Docs and emails in order to negotiate and approve, create all your contracts, it, that's not a scalable contract process. And mm-hmm. I would encourage people to look up contract lifecycle management tools. For example, you know, ironclad is incredibly user friendly mm-hmm. and it allows regular business users to self service their own contracts. Also giving your executives and your legal teams oversight on all inner workings of their business from the perspective of a contract, which is frankly, just the inner workings of a business. I mean, contracts move businesses, right? So having a a CLM is not only going to make things move faster, it's also going to give you actionable insights on how you're running things. And it's going to mitigate risk. So when you're negotiating something, you're not losing track of a recent modification. You don't have to go to a shared email, for example, to find Mm -hmm. out, okay, what's the most recent email that deals with this provision? It sort of just, it tracks all that. So I think that is, I mean, the CLM space is, which stands for contract lifecycle management. This is something that's really hot right now in legal tech. And I think it's hot right now for a reason. It's because people are finding more and more that it's very, very useful, especially relative to the status quo or just using different sort of you know word documents google documents gmail outlook and just patching that process together
2: nathan now forgive me i gotta throw in a little disclaimer because you do work for ironclad oh yeah yeah so no i love ironclad just you know there's ironclad and i'm sure there's other competitors out there but you know if you want to talk about ironclad uh, you know i would suggest the listener contact nathan please so do. Na- so nathan what is your third tech tool that you think It's best to help attorneys with their day-to-day work. So that's just
1: probably relegated to document drafting support and document Mm -hmm. drafting automation. So that could be Grammarly. I was very resistant to Grammarly as an attorney because I thought, I'm an incredible writer. I don't need some Silicon Valley guy telling me how to write a legal brief. I downloaded Grammarly and I was very impressed with its recommendations. It's free and it is very useful for adding clarity to your sentence structures wherever they may exist i'm a huge I, fan of grammarly
2: i use it myself because the nice thing about grammarly is when you install it on your computer or your smart devices you can incorporate it not just into your word processing but on when you're replying to web forms or even gmail or in other programs where you have to do a little bit of writing it does come in handy to have that automation Correct yourself, or at least point out, you know, where you may have made some typos. Because, quite frankly, nobody's perfect, and yes, attorneys are not perfect either. Well, that's up for debate. (laughs) (laughs) I have two other ones on
1: that note too. Oh, sorry, please. The other one is for patent attorneys uh, exclusively, and that Mm -hmm. would be a program called Draft Builders, which uh, is run by a very, very expert leader named Ian Schick, Dr. Ian Schick, who works Mm -hmm. with Stanford's codex program and that's the intersection between stanford university's legal department and their computer science department and that automates uses ai to automate the drafting of certain patent documents like that is it's a really cool product and it's it's been getting a lot of steam recently so if you're a patent attorney at least check it out and then for a a self-serving thing would be would be briefpoint briefpoint automates the construction of discovery response documents using ai It is a great tool. It's free to use. I'm not going to sell it here, but it just, if you have discovery responses and you don't like drafting them, check it out.
2: Well, before we get to the second question, which I know you're going to like, I just want to point out, we discussed this slightly off mic, is that there's a program I use fairly religiously. It's called Text Expander. So that when you have a lot of things that you constantly type over and over again, whether it be a word or a sentence or a phrase or even just parts of say a contract or part of a discovery, that you can create these snippets. So that if you type, say, for me, like if I type S A L, that stands that's short for salutation. So if I'm like in some sort of web form or for whatever reason, my email just did not pop up my automatic salutation to go out, my signature line. I could just type that and it magically puts it all in, you know, name, address, phone numbers, emails, disclaimer, you know, et cetera. And it just saves me so much time. For instance, you know, a lot of times we have to type that squiggly symbol, that section symbol. And when you're needing to put it in, you got to go into the symbols, you know, in Word and find the symbol that you need. And sometimes you just don't remember where it is. But if I type dot section, I've got a program so that the section symbol will automatically pop up. Saves so much time. I always forget the shortcut for the section
1: symbol. And I am embarrassed about the how many times I've had to go in, search right. section symbol
2: in Google and copy and paste it. I. Uh... <laughs> but the thing is, it takes time. And that's taking time away from what you're trying to focus on. Of course, you may forget what you're thinking about. You don't want to lose your thoughts. And even though it may save you anywhere from a couple seconds to a minute, if that adds up over time, that is money in the bank that you get to use, whether it's for work or for free time. Exactly, That's a dream. So moving on to question number two, what are three ways BriefPoint can assist attorneys in their work? Oh, love this. you were right. I do like this question. <laughs> so, <laughs> I told you.
1: <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Briefpoint. Uh, so at a high level, Briefpoint takes opposing counsel's discovery request PDFs and then uses AI in order to con- rapidly construct a response template. And then it populates that template from, or excuse me, using the user attorney's work product uh, in a manner that is drag and drop. So uh you know let's talk about the process of drafting a discovery response without it effectively you get a discovery request maybe you send it to your client you get some notes on it and then you start drafting it so you open up a master caption document and then you fill in the document or excuse me the case information on the the front page and then you find an old work discovery response you've drafted in the past you get the preliminary statement the general objections you copy Mm -hmm. and paste that you control f change the names you then go to the requests, or you and your your support staff copy all the individual requests from the PDF if -hmm. you can and then or retype it, usually copy and paste it into the Word document. And then you start typing your objections. These objections in California do not need too much tailoring relative to maybe New York or some federal jurisdictions. You sort of you're effectively copying and pasting these objections. Obviously, you're doing so in appreciation of the request. You're not doing so blindly. And then you type out your substantive response. With BriefPoint, we do basically all of that except for the substantive response. So what does it do for attorneys? It You basically can get a discovery response drafted from the time you log in to the time you open it in Word within a matter of minutes as opposed to a matter of hours. So it increases the turnaround times for those. There are features including firm standards where you can, as a firm administrator, Set up in your work product library on BriefPoint, your preferred phraseology and language for all sorts of objections and preliminary statements, and maybe for certain clients you have. And then anyone in your firm that is drafting a response can then access those firm standards, the preferred language. And that cuts back on the need to A, redline these documents, B, have conversations with your associate or paralegal about attention to detail because on Response to special interrogatory 150. They messed up one of the the objections or whatever. I mean, it just does it automatically, right? And lastly, we also have the ability to automatically incorporate due dates for the discovery responses. So we extract the data service. You identify the manner of service, and then we have you know court days, holidays, weekends. Everything's baked into our system, so you get the exact due date you need pursuant to the California Code of Civil Procedure and on that note brief one is right now only available in in california we are building out the functionality and we're going to do federal coverage and then other states as time goes on but if you have any discovery in california it's you got to check it out
2: excellent (laughs) actually you answered my question because i was going to say is it state specific is it only state not federal and will you be dealing with agency discovery in any sense, federal agency discovery, not necessarily in federal court, but you know, in agency practice. So, in an, any matter or Merit System Protection Board, just to name a couple.
1: It really depends. It, we due to the nature of the machine learning processes mm-hmm. we have, it's relatively easy for us to handle a new document type or a new uh, discovery type. as you know we we try to map onto how an attorney drafts discovery we look at the attorney's workflow okay how do they do this Mm -hmm. we cut that workflow into a cross section and we pull out every piece we can automate to affect an aggregate time save and that is to say if those agency discovery response processes are similar to the other federal discovery response processes it will not be an issue in fact i think three weeks ago that happened in some sort of I think it was like an employment case someone uploaded a discovery request in a administrative proceeding and our machine learning handled it because it was similar enough to the training set we we fed it on.
2: Excellent. Excellent. Well, that, that's good to know. Keep it, for us to keep an eye on because not you know, I do mostly administrative agency work. So, I used to do a lot of administrative agency work when it came to EEOC and System Protection Board. I'm focusing more on Department of Veterans stuff now, but it still would be a useful tool, I think, especially given my past experience. I think other attorneys would really appreciate that. Let's move on to question number three. What are three ways you see technology heading that attorneys need to keep an eye on? So I think we are at a very exciting moment
1: of AI. And AI has been thrown around a lot. And it's been around for a long time. But I think attorneys really need to start paying attention to AI and its impact on the practice of law. So I can talk about three things. I'm gonna I'm going to talk about them in the context of AI. And before I do that, I think it's it's good to go over sort of the 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 types of AI generally. Sure. I'm not an AI expert by any means. I know substantially. Mm -hmm. Like I don't know much about AI. I know enough to get by. So I bear with me here. Wait, we're not gonna hold you to it. I appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no one subpoena me to be an expert witness in any cases, please. So there, there's a couple types of AI that are important to deal with in the context of, of law and just generally. There's AI mechanisms that allow a computer to understand and make sense of different types of data. Mm-hmm. So there's natural language processing or NLP, which looks at text and makes sense of text or the black shapes on the white background of a document and translates that into text. There's computer vision. Which looks at images and makes sense of the images. This is something that you actually train when you're doing a captcha and you identify all the buses in a grid of pictures. That data is actually being fed to train an AI, maybe an autonomous driving vehicle, depending on where that data is going. And that allows the computer to say, okay, look at a picture. This is what it is. Mm -hmm. Sort of the first line. The other type of AI is machine learning and machine learning takes a data set and then it uses that data set to make decisions based on the inferences it's gathered from that data so for example in the context of e-discovery there are things called technology assisted review programs or tar and the tar program will watch as you identify certain documents in a discovery in in a production as you tag it as various things. And then once you tag one email as relevant, it will then reorganize all the rest of the data or the documents, give you the next one that it thinks is relevant. And then you say, okay, this is relevant or irrelevant. Then it resorts everything, gives you what it then thinks is relevant and you tag it. And it just sort of filters and refines the data over time it's you're training the machine to make predictions and assumptions based on the data you're feeding it the other type that is important to understand is called deep learning and deep Mm -hmm. learning we are at a very monumentous point in history when it comes to deep learning Uh, there are a couple reasons for that but deep learning uses neural networks to look at data sets and then organize them in conceptual hierarchies in a way that's built around how we believe the human brains to work with neural networks, like one uh, pathway has a different context and a different meaning than another pathway. And these things are, right now, they're sort of in vogue because of uh, OpenAI's GPT-3 and Dolly. You'll see those AI-generated images. They are working off of 175 billion different parameters. They are ingesting the internet, looking at everything, and then making very persuasive content based on those data sets as guided by the user's prompts. So for example, if you write in Michael and Nathan in a podcast, they will generate images of someone that they think is a Michael and someone they think is a Nathan having you know microphones and maybe they're on a computer screen and they're sort of talking to each other because they're able to identify Michael and Nathan as people and you know they have pictures of podcasts and information on podcasts to conceptualize what's happening in that sentence and then give you that information. Uh, and then so so let's talk about what does that mean for attorneys. So nice. in the context of litigation, I think the practice of litigation or specifically the practice of drafting a litigation document can be boiled down to collecting and connecting factual and legal data in order to construct content that maximizes the attorney's chances of achieving the objectives that the document seeks to fulfill. So there's three parts to that. There's collecting the data. What does that look like? Well, that's a client intake form. That's interviewing your client. Uh, We can use a personal injury case. The attorney collects data by saying, what happened at the accident? who was driving? Was the other guy drunk? What were your injuries like? How much did that cost you? Are you still suffering in any way? That's collecting factual data. The attorney then with that factual data will then connect that to legal data like tort law or vehicle code sections uh, that apply to drunk driving, speeding, etc. In connecting those two things, he then con- he or she connects or excuse me constructs maybe a demand letter that outlines the facts, the grounds upon which he or she intends to bring a case should the demand letter go unanswered. And if they're good, they've connected the legal and factual data in a manner that's persuasive, which is another term for maximizing the document's chances of achieving the objective it was set up, out to achieve. And AI plays a role in all of this, okay? So back to natural language processing and computer vision. This is all about collecting the data. You can m- feed an AI with natural language processing, computer vision, Police reports, a client intake form, pictures of the accident. And presumably, like theoretically, it could take all that data and make sense of it and says, okay, they enter this picture shows a car entering from the east and passing through a red light before striking the plaintiff's car. You can look at the client's intake form and say, this is uh, located in Los Angeles. The client is 32 years old. You can look at the medical records and say the client paid $100,000 in medical fees just related to this case because of the, the operations. So now we have all that. AI can then look at that, and then you get machine learning involved, and you've trained machine learning to take that factual data and then link it to the appropriate legal data. So you say, okay, if def- if a defendant's identified as passing through a red light, you have that data point, then the, this California vehicle section applies, and you can pull that in. So now you have the world of legal and factual data connected, connecting it in, and that's machine learning, connecting it in a way that maximizes the document's chances of achieving its end. That's where neural networking comes in, where you give the neural network a world of documents that have won, and it's able to look at how those documents were drafted, maybe even in the attorney's own language in order to get that legal, the connected legal and factual data into a brief, a complaint, a demand letter, and entirely construct it in a way that is just as good as if a human had done it. And I think that's really, that's what BriefPoint is seeking to do in the end game, is to facilitate all of litigation, uh, automation, using a combination of NLP, computer vision, machine learning, and neural networks. And I think um, BriefPoint won't be the only people to do it. And I think it's something that is uh, very exciting.
2: Well, I've got three follow-up questions for you on this. So number one, using BriefPoint or AI, should the attorneys be under any illusion that, you know, we run it through the program, we're done? In other words, don't they need to check their work?
1: Absolutely. Just like a doctor wouldn't blindly prescribe medication, you need to, even though they recommend it for certain ailments, you know, the doctor just doesn't, you know, if you have a broken arm, they say, okay, we'll give you Percocet or something because you're suffering pain. There, The attorney is the middle person between the AI and the client, and it should always be that way for now. There are certain cases of simple legal procedures like in the Upsolve instance where maybe we don't need an attorney to help a bankruptcy petitioner drafting a certain document. Maybe that's not right to require that because they are already clearly not in a place where they can afford legal services like that. And maybe that is a discussion. And I think the, the rules of unauthorized practice of law need to be very closely looked at in the context of the capabilities of AI. However, in the context of of BriefPoint, we are here for the attorneys. We, the AI we use in the neural networks, it is purely suggestive, is not mandatory. So we don't seek to replace an attorney with AI. We seek to accelerate an attorney with AI. And this is something that I think that's an important framework to consider AI through because If you try to replace humans with computers, there are some tasks that simply cannot be executed reliably by a computer. For example, fixing a sink. An AI can tell you everything about how to fix a sink, but constructing a robot that can go into any house and any sink configuration and fix it is very challenging, if not close to impossible, given the current state of mechanic hardware and all that other things. So that is to say, I give that example because there's some things that attorneys do that really, that I don't think should be automated by AI. For example, an AI could tell you what, given a judge's presidential history, and you can look at things like Trellis Law and you know, Lex Machina, who collect all the data on how a judge has ruled in order to provide the user with a, a loose estimated chance of success given certain arguments and certain facts, right? An AI can say, you have a 90% chance of winning uh in this judge if you cite this case or something. And this is just an example. The attorney is going to know better than the AI likely whether right. or not that's true, given the facts. They're going to have a better understanding of how the client works, what arguments will be more favorable for a jury and other sort of human instincts and intuitions that AI, I don't think, can replace reliably. And I think that should remain within the realm of attorneys.
2: Well, let me my second question is going to pull a little bit on your answer, on your first answer, that companies like yourself and the versus say companies like Hello Divorce and other DIY programs or websites that you know help people go through certain processes like a divorce or bankruptcy, etc. Now, what's to prevent Joe Schmo from, you know, using your program for their own personal discovery case that they're handling pro se, and then a concern that you're helping promote UPL.
1: Right, no, I mean, UPL is always front of mind. So we actually have uh, we have processes, we identify pro se litigants and quarantine mm-hmm. them, and uh, like we address that immediately. I would love to live in a world where UPL unauthorized practice of law, which right. is UPL, like allowed us to help these people, but that's just not where we're at right now. And so we actively track and monitor the qualifications and the license status of of the users. And we very clearly say only licensed attorneys and their agents can use this platform. And then we quarantine them, which we effectively restrict access. Has that been a problem? It's not been a problem, but it has
2: certainly happened. It happens very frequently. Oh yeah. And well- have you had, I don't know, attorneys from other states try to use your product?
1: No, all of our marketing and everything is is strictly to California li- licensed litigation attorneys. Uh, there are some Google searches that would lead a non-litigation attorney right. to BriefPoint likely, uh, but in those cases, you know, we are very clear and then we restrict their access as soon as we can.
2: So have you had any contacts from the state bar, any issues with them? No. Please know I'm not encouraging anything. I you know these are just, you know, cuz other lawyers are looking to do things like DIY and of course even come up with programs and web services to help other attorneys and you know I know that they are all interested in you know well i got to be careful because this might be worthwhile or able to be done in state a but not allowed in state z
1: yeah luckily the the nature of breakpoint is such that it's frankly unusable in other states because the first thing we identify when we're Looking at a document is the jurisdiction in order to apply mm-hmm. local drafting rules to the extent those, those are different from the California standard. So we, uh, we, if something's in another state, it just, it wouldn't work until we permit that usage. Uh, but going back to the DIY stuff, I think that's a, we're in a really exciting time for that as well. The, what is it? The alternative law practice structure where non-attorneys right. can share in the profit of a, a legal department or a law yeah. firm. I think that's good. I think that's heading the right direction. I think a lot of law is sort of held behind a curtain of complexity that doesn't necessarily need to be there uh, in all cases and i think empowering more people to do things on their own is a good thing and there are, i mean we have i think was in arizona utah they you know there's the sandboxes where they're they're trying this out and right i think we need to look at those and pay attention to those to see how that goes because there was a study my main concern with that and I am for that, but I sort of see that in a similar way that physicians' assistants work at the behest of doctors. And you have a physician's assistant or a PA right. work in an office, and they sort of work independently of the doctor. Right. And I have all the respect for PAs, and I think they do really good work, and they lower the cost of medical services, even mm-hmm. though it costs the same for a PA as a doctor. I mean. They create more supply, which I right. assume would lower the cost. There's been a study that was released, I think, last year that showed that the the quality of their work, they it, it was the results of their findings was was not as good as doctors, and the ultimate cost was substantially more because they would run more tests, because they were less certain, because they had less experience. Right. So I look at that study and I think. We need to be mindful of that risk when we start enabling not unlicensed attorneys to do these things. And I think the way forward, at least initially, is through technology that attorneys ye- wield. And they, they use these automation things to provide maybe these self-service things for clients. But there has to be an attorney in the mix uh, at some point. And I think the the starting point is... At throughout a larger portion of that process, and then maybe we can minimize that that portion of involvement as time goes on.
2: Well, you know, it's funny you say that because I volunteer for a college that teaches paralegals and law clerks, and one of the things was being discussed is what does the law clerk or paralegal need to know that enhances their value to the lawyer? And one of my thoughts were. With regards to technology, as we all know, attorneys tend to be a little bit slow to adapt because they know what works and they're a little bit afraid or hesitant to try something new that would really help if the law clerk or paralegal knew the program better than the attorney. So that when the attorney has questions, paralegal or law clerk can easily assist. And when the paralegal or law clerk is the expert, that makes the attorney's life so much easier. Whether it's Brief point, filing a document, using a CRM online, etc. Because attorney's value is going to be more better situated in the true art of being an attorney, you know, reading, writing, arguing, versus making sure a particular program is working correctly or even data entry.
1: Yeah, I love that. And I like that idea because it is... Acknowledging the reality of the relationship between technology and litigators as litigators or attorneys grow in their career. Namely, as you become more senior, mm-hmm. the type of tasks you execute become less and less suited for technological replacement. True. So as you advance in your career, and this is no fault of your own, and this is how it should be, frankly. Right. right. You be you don't need, there's the less of a demand. For you to use technology because technology stops solving the problems you've had as you're getting more high level, more advanced, more big picture. And I think that's a good thing. And I think to your point, circling back to it, focusing on training the secretaries and paralegals with the tech, they still get all the benefits from the tech. Even though it's not necessarily their pain point anymore, their clients are going to be way happier. They no longer need to learn new tech, although I think I have an issue with learning new tech I think if the tech is good enough it should go without learning like no one needs a computer science degree to use one of the most advanced AI systems named Google but still I mean you I, I really like that idea I think that's and focusing on tech that's how a lot of attorneys actually imagine tech will be brought into their firm I know a lot of attorneys and I think there was a study or some uh, survey that found that the senior attorneys are relying on the younger generation to bring in the technological advancements within their firm.
2: Well, we also have to remember that under the model rules 1.1 comment 8, attorneys still need to be up to date on technology. Now, but we could still balance that out in the fact that, yeah, they need to be up to date, but they don't necessarily need to be masters of that particular technology. And going back to what I was saying that you sort of rounded back to was the fact that I think when you have a law clerk or paralegal who's truly, if you will, an expert or better versed does still help the attorney. So uh, I hear what you're saying about, you know, as you go higher and higher up the food chain, your your reliance to technology personally may be lightened, but you still have a responsibility to have an idea of what's going on.
1: Yeah. And I think that's the case in anything your paralegal does for you. You you should probably have an idea of what's going on.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. How, How many times have we seen an attorney get in trouble because paralegal didn't do something or the the attorney relied on something the the paralegal said or worse yet the paralegal had access to the trust account and suddenly money's missing
1: yeah i think that happens to every attorney there's always going to be a time in your life where you sign off on something and you know after maybe you've built trust with a subordinate and they do and then you, or maybe subordinate's a bad word your colleague that is a paralegal secretary or associate right and you sign off on it and it turns out you know they made a mistake but humans will always make mistakes and you know <laughs> i think that having a paralegal as an expert in the technology it will really that that's all, there's only benefit there in my my eyes
2: well you answered my third question already and that was whether or not we're going to no longer need an attorney and i think you articulated a great case that we we're always going to need attorneys in the same sense we're always going to need doctors and engineers and that there needs to be boots on the ground if you will people with knowledge in order to kind of move the mission forward in any situation
1: yeah. And Forbes, you know, they just came out with an article and they they were talking about, I think, AI in the context of radiology. And they said, very rightfully, in my opinion, the only people that are going to lose their jobs to AI are those that refuse to work with it.
2: Excellent. And that is a perfect note to leave off on. Nathan, where can people find you? You
1: can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, Nathan Walter, legal technologist. Find me on LinkedIn, shoot me a message
2: and I will respond to you. We will be sure to have all of that and more in the show notes. Nathan, I want to thank you very much for being a guest today. Michael, it's Um, it's been my pleasure. uh, You know, I really do have a lot of fun being here. And just for the listeners, uh, Nathan and I met in Nashville a couple weeks ago, at least from the date of this recording, at the American Legal Technology Awards uh, ceremony. He was a table mate. And it was a pleasure meeting you then. It is a pleasure talking with you now. And I look forward to uh, seeing you again soon. Absolutely, Michael. I am looking forward to it as well. Thanks again. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the Page podcast. Our next episode will be posted in about two weeks. If you have any ideas about a future episode, please contact me at MichaelDJ at the page. Have a great day and happy luring.